For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, May 9th, the emotional gold digger edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast Outward. Hi, I'm Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of Thirst Aid Kit. And I'm Marsha Chatlin, a history professor at Georgetown University. And Marsha, you have a little news, don't you? Didn't you? You're taking a year off from teaching? I am. I was very fortunate to be named a Carnegie Fellow, which means I get a Wimbledon-sized check so that (laughs) I can take the year um, to start a new book project about first-generation college students. That's amazing. Congrats. Thank you. So before we get into this week's episode, we got a response from the subject of the New York Times article, Women Did Everything Right, Then Work Got Greedy, sent us a response to our segment. Her name is Daniela Jampel. I've been emailing with her. She had a lot of really interesting things to say, so I want to read part of what she sent me. She writes, I had a pretty strong reaction to your comment that sometimes you look at couples with the setup I have with my husband and wonder why can't we just be less rich and have more gender equity? My reaction really surprised me because I had read hundreds of comments online, most of which were not particularly complimentary, and those didn't faze me at all. But your comment really stung. And I think it's because being a feminist is a really big part of my identity. So it's really hard for me to grapple with the fact that my life is largely organized around stereotypical gender roles. The fact is, I have a pretty good situation. My husband earns enough to support the family, and I get to have a job that's fulfilling while not being stressful and spend time with my kids. In order to live a less gendered life, I'd also have to live a more uncomfortable life. I'm not willing to make that trade-off, especially because living by feminist ideals is not exactly valued by our society. In fact, not only does society not value feminism, it rewards not being feminist. There are benefits to being a woman who accepts her role and is willing to support the patriarchy. I'm in on the heist, and I don't particularly like being reminded of that. How much personal sacrifice is reasonable to expect of women in the name of feminism and gender equity? And also, you know who doesn't think about any of these issues? Men. Thank you so much, Daniela, for that email. Uh, I think her comments really get to the reasons why these discussions can be so fraught and so difficult to have and why so many women end up making the decisions they do when the decisions they can or can't make are constrained by the infrastructure of patriarchy. All right, moving on. This week... We're going to start off with a conversation about Castor Semenya, the Olympic champion runner who was just told she can no longer compete unless she takes drugs to lower her testosterone levels. Then we'll review Tuca and Birdie, a new Netflix cartoon for adults starring Tiffany Haddish and Ali Wong. And we have a very meaty third topic, are men emotional gold diggers? Nicole, what are we talking about for our Slate Plus segment this week? So our Slate Plus segment is going to be all about whether or not 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's boyfriend, you know, is he hot? And if he's hot or not, does it really matter? Like, is it sexist that we have opinions about his looks at all? (laughs) All right, here's a little snippet of that discussion. But to say that the Riley Roberts looked like a bin raccoon, <laughs> uh, I, I thought that was a little overkill. As opposed um, to what other kind rem- of raccoon? Like a raccoon that just came out of a garbage <laughs> can versus a raccoon just like generally frolicking around in the wild. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash the waves plus. Okay, last week... Caster Semenya, the 28-year-old track star from South Africa, lost her landmark case against new sex testing rules from the sports governing body. So if she wants to continue to compete in the 800-meter event, which she hasn't lost since 2015, that's 30 straight wins, she'll have to take drugs to lower the amount of testosterone that her body naturally produces. Um, The IAAF, which is the International Track and Field Governing Body, has been casting doubt on Semenya's gender since 2009 when she was a teenager. She was asked to take a test, uh, a so-called gender verification test, because people were suspicious of her ability to run so fast and also because of the way she looked, her height, her muscle distribution. Um, So now in her sport, her body is officially considered beyond the appropriate bounds of participation. Our very own production assistant, Alex Barish, wrote a great piece for the Washington Post about Semenya and about the philosophies sort of underpinning the sport court's recent decision, allowing the testosterone rules to proceed. And we are so happy to have him on the mic to talk about it. Hi, Alex. Hey, thank you for having me. So the title of your piece in the Post was The Scrutiny of Castor Semenya's Body Fits into an Ugly Pattern. What does that mean? What's the, the pattern here? So the first thing I noticed after the ruling against Castor Semenya was announced was the way that it was received online. And that was something that I found very telling in terms of the pattern that this discrimination fits into. Something that was notable was that she was immediately misidentified as trans by Fox News. They said that a transgender runner had been uh, banned. And first of all, that's not true. Castor Semenya is uh, a cisgender woman. And Not that the comment section is the highest level of discourse, but I do think that it can be revealing that so many people were celebrating a quote-unquote man being kept out of the competition. So you see the sort of misdirected transphobia that's at play there. But there's also this question of the racism that underpins this. You know, women of color and especially black women have long been scrutinized for their bodies and whether they actually conform to this very specific standard of femininity. And because Castor Semenya is this, you know, muscular gay athlete, she in particular has been subject to that kind of scrutiny, essentially since she came onto the scene when she was 18 years old. And we've seen that ever since, like uh, in the women's 800 meter race at the Rio Olympics, she won gold and there were three black women on the podium. And this athlete from Poland who finished fifth just after um, an athlete from Canada said that the Canadian athlete Bishop should have been the gold medalist and that she was glad to be the first European and the second white. Oh, wow. So, like, that's the level of racism and entitlement that we're talking about here. And I feel like we need to consider both of those threads of kind of who is allowed to be a woman and who is allowed to win when we're looking at her case generally. It reminds me a lot of 
Serena Williams. And, you know, Serena is drug tested far more than her counterparts, which she didn't even realize until I think she tweeted it maybe um, a year or two ago that she, you know, it's like, oh, here comes somebody else to you know, pop up and drug test me. Um, But Serena Williams is drug drug tested far more than her counterparts. But the woman who's considered her rival, right, Maria Sharapova, has far more um, financial endorsements than than Serena does, even though Serena makes her money, whatever. But because Maria is blonde and tall, she's she's actually taller than Serena. Um, She's tall, but she's, you know, kind of willowy I guess you know if I were to use my romance novel words um (laughs) that's how she (laughs) looks and you know she looks a bit more feminine or whatever we describe as feminine and um you know she talks about how her Maria talks about how her workout routine is such that she doesn't really want to be too defined she doesn't want to be too muscular which seems to be a direct shot at Serena who is a muscular woman and yet and yet when Serena was in the hospital after she delivered her baby, you know, she had to force someone to pay attention to her health concerns um, that were life threatening. And so it always fascinates me the way women, black women's bodies are constantly under scrutiny when you're trying to discredit their reputation or their career. But when black women need help, then, you know, people turn an eye, they turn away from the situation. So that's fascinating um, to me. And it also makes me think of um, Don Imus in 2007. Don Imus, who is a mm-hmm. old school radio personality, um, he was talking about the Rutgers women's basketball team. Um, and he called them nappy headed jigaboos. And he was with uh, hoes, right? He yeah, he them ca- yeah, but they were going back and forth between hoes and jigaboos. Um, they, they said both. Um, so, again, it's like, you know. It feels like black women can't win. You know, our curves are mocked and pointed at and laughed at. And yet you see them now on Instagram models, uh, Fashion Nova bodies. So you have the black women being too curvy, but yet being mocked and um, emulated. Then you have black women athletes being mocked for not being feminine enough. So it's just like the black woman physically cannot win in either of these situations. And it's very frustrating. One of the things that I think is really interesting in this conversation, um, when we think about the body and athletics, is this weird thing about what is biological and what is the result of training and the intensity of an athletic training program. And a lot of people have brought up this point about how I think Michael Phelps has something where he produces less lactic acid and the celebration of his biological um, differences as helping propel his ability to do sports and how people have juxtaposed them in these stories about how, um, you know, it's celebrated in one hand and her biological differences, right, are um, punished. But one of the things I think is really interesting in this conversation um, is an, it's an opportunity to really kind of go deep into the idea of the black athlete as a natural talent versus a disciplined talent. So in certain sports, like especially like track and field, certain positions in football, there's this idea that um, black people, because of their um, physical makeup, are just naturally good at some things and not others. And this is why um, when they talk about football and 
black quarterbacks being accepted, it's because the quarterback position is allegedly a cerebral one. So that is red is white. And I think about all of these things in this kind of larger umbrella about the ways that um, on one hand, um, biology is the issue, but I think it also contributes to this idea about whether or not um, black people, when they perform well and when they are celebrated for talents, those talents have to be about nature and not about the work that they put in. So even people who are you know, incredibly um, skilled athletes, there's still an undertone about whether or not they are lazy. And I think Serena Williams sometimes gets this. And so I think that this whole conversation has just been so, for me, upsetting because it kind of work, it kind of is working with every single horrible racial and gender trope. And one of the things I do think is um, like fantastic through all of it is that even though um, these conversations about Castor uh, Semenya have been happening for a decade, I think that the responses are now more sophisticated, that people have a clearer understanding about um, gender as biology and gender as social construct. And I've been impressed with the just better analysis than I think was out there a decade ago. And I also like the fact that she's like, I want nothing to do with this. I'm not going to take treatments. I'm not going to consume drugs, which is interesting for an athlete to be told to consume something um, that is quote unquote unnatural because everything about athleticism is about this idea of, of purity, of not doing that to the body. And so I just, I, I hate what's happening and I'm really heartened by how much better the conversation is. When you talk about the difference between, you know, nature and discipline, my reaction, I mean, having not thought through the sort of racial implications of that narrative, was that I feel like people really fetishize this idea of like the working hard and the commitment and like the Nike commercial and the if you try really hard and get up really early and, you know, work really late, anyone can become this incredible talent when a lot of it is actually about an accident of genetics uh, and and the way one's body works. Like, you know, only people of a certain height can be really good at basketball. Uh, and and as you mentioned, Michael Phelps, you know, um, has been widely lauded as being like built by God to be a swimmer because of the way his body processes lactic acid. So I do think that Zemenia's case is kind of forcing people to confront the idea of, you know, what do we like about sports? Or I guess it's exposing a lot of the contradictions in the way we appreciate athletes and and what we actually want out of sports. So I think a lot of people are looking at this case and thinking about why do we separate women's and men's athletics? And when you talk about the way people speak about gender now, Marsha, I think part of that is um, people today have a little bit of a better understanding than they did a decade ago of how even the biology of sex is not sort of black and white and binary and cut and dry, that there are genetics, uh, you know, hormones and chromosomes and and reproductive organs that don't always and, and often don't align into like two very clear categories. Um, Alex, I know you talked a lot about the science of testosterone um, and the research that's done about this uh, in your piece. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what what does the science say about testosterone and sex and athletic performance? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that has been interesting and sort of troubling about this case is that, like you've both been saying, biological sex is 
so much more complicated than a lot of people have historically been willing to recognize. Especially when we're talking about trans people or intersex people, it's the Ben Shapiro line of like, facts don't care about your feelings. But the reality is that the facts are a lot more complicated than might be comfortable or convenient for people who are invested in this idea of biological sex. And testosterone has sort of become the shorthand for maleness in this way but i don't know who needs to hear this but women produce testosterone like cis women do naturally <laughs> and even hyperandrogenism which is uh the condition that we think castor semenya has isn't remarkably uncommon you know five to ten percent of women have these elevated testosterone levels if you have polycystic ovarian syndrome which a lot of women do you probably have higher than average testosterone and uh, it, I feel as though there's this almost pseudoscientific impulse to elevate testosterone as the explanation for all athletic excellence. And that's not really the case. You know, the data on the causative link between testosterone and performance are very poor and very inconsistent. You know, uh, the report from the IAAF acknowledges that there's no evidence of a performance difference in the 1500 meter for uh, elevated testosterone. And that's one of Semenya's best events. But the ruling still says, well, she's going to have to take this uh, medication to lower her hormone levels. And it, it is just this very messy science. And I think a lot of people do not like that because they prefer the easy answer of, oh, well, if your testosterone levels are here or if you have these genitalia, then you are male or female. But clearly she represents this gray area that is the site of a lot of hostility. And my question is, so let's say that... Um she does start taking the hormone that reduces her testosterone and she still wins. What happens then? Like what is she still performing yeah. extremely well because she is a disciplined athlete and she has been training for this all of her life. So what's what's going to be the next thing that people are going to throw in her way, throw in her way to stop her from winning? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, that's happened. Like in 2011, the upper limits were set at 10 nanomoles per liter and Semenya underwent hormone treatment to get below that level. And she still won silver at the London Olympics the following year. And it, that's why in 2018, they lowered it even further to five nanomoles per liter. Like these are completely arbitrary measures that are just like we don't actually want Semenya to win yeah. these events. Mm -hmm. So let's keep changing the goalposts, you know, irrespective of what the science actually says. And I'm curious, Alex, like, who determines these levels? I mean, is it doctors in consultation with um, athletic officials? I mean, it, it, there's something about um, this bizarre sense of certainty that they've developed on what it should be. And I'm very curious about who's deemed the authority on this. Yeah, I mean, the IAF commissioned a study essentially in order to back up the rulings that they were making around these levels of testosterone that would be acceptable. But that study has been very heavily critiqued and sort of picked apart in terms of its methodology and the conclusions that it's drawn by independent researchers. So this is really contested ground. And most of the studies that we have on testosterone and performance show either a weak link or no links. There are certain circumstances in which higher baseline T is associated with worse performance. Yeah, that's one of the things that I found most interesting is that it's not like testosterone is this miracle drug that automatically makes you better at all sports. It, it actually, according to at least one study um, that I think you cited in your piece, Alex, it, it lowers your endurance. Um, and, you know, who's to say that some of the other women competing against Semenya don't have like stronger bones or more flexible ligaments or like it's the singling out of this one sort of um, possible biological advantage that Semenya has that makes so clear to me 
the screwed up politics of of gender that are underlying this decision that have very little to do with actual sport and more to do with, you know, establishing a narrow definition of womanhood. I have um, PCOS, the polycystic ovary syndrome, and whatever extra testosterone I have, it just makes me a little extra hairy. (laughs) Um, And I'm definitely not an athlete. So I don't, it's just, it's a ridiculous thing all around. And I just feel so bad for um, Castor and not in a pitying way, but just like this is such a ridiculous, invasive, intrusive um, process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, women with higher testosterone levels are somewhat overrepresented among elite athletes, which is a a favorite stat of the people who say that she should be uh, excluded. But so are women with complete androgen insensitivity syndrome. So their cells have no ability to respond to testosterone, even if they naturally produce it. So clearly testosterone is not the the deciding factor here. And the fact that it has been emphasized over and over in this way, I think, has to do with our ideas about gender and about womanhood and about who is allowed to be a woman and who is allowed to succeed in these spaces. And there is no basis for that in science. It's just about undermining these people's dignity. Mm-hmm. I hope this is like the beginning of the end of the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> Hot <take>. Burn it down. <laughs> hot take. I mean, not only is it like not sustainable and bad for communities that host it, but I think this idea of like the kind of like racist ethnic nationalism of nations are competing to see which person's citizens and the citizenship question is also something that's kind of interesting how people become citizens for the purpose of athletic um, participation. Like maybe we should just stop. And that's that's going to be my final take on this one, because I think that it it's so bound up, right, um, about ideas about about um, not only just biological difference, but about capability and about this idea that there are there's this grand competition, not just for um, like supremacy, but resources. And so there's something about that. Um, that entry into athletics that also, you know, sometimes encourages abuse, as we know, oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. is exploitative. And so I, I just I just think that this would be a great opportunity for us to all stop it on so many frequencies. None of this is going to happen. But I do think, again, like this exposes so much about something that we take for granted, that there's something natural or normal about this type of athletic competition. I have to admit, i find myself in a little bit of a thought spiral here where I stop believing that it makes sense for men and women to compete in in separate categories in sports because of the you know impossibility of creating cut and dry categories around gender but also I, I've actually written a piece about you know why co-ed sports for kids uh, actually can harm girls in in particular and and really only benefit boys. Um, So like obviously gender exists, but trying to separate people out physically for the purposes of um, relatively equal competition seems impossible to me. Can any of you think of a way that it actually makes sense to uh, establish firm boundaries around gender and sports? Because it all comes down to eventually somebody's going to have to come up with a biological definition of sex or gender in order for, you know, whatever categories to be enforced. It seems like whatever they come up with would be problematic. Yeah, I mean, this 
case has become such a flashpoint. There are athletes who are saying that if someone like Castor Semenya, who is not trans, is allowed to compete, then that'll open the floodgates for these trans athletes and it'll be the death of women's sport because no cis woman will ever take the podium again. And we just know that that's not true because, you know, guidelines have existed for trans athletes to compete in the Olympics for 15 years. You know, the Stockholm consensus has existed since 2003, I believe, and it hasn't happened yet. No out trans athlete has competed in the category with which they identify in that entire time span. And, you know, there have been a few trans athletes who have won world championships, but not at like the highest level of sport. It's been in categories for 35 to 44 year olds. The inclusion of people according to the gender with which they identify doesn't seem likely to cause gendered sport to collapse into itself, you know, and I question the the fears that people are sort of deliberately stoking around that and whether that is actually something we have to be as concerned about as so many people seem to be and as we're seeing in this case. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of there was a transgender teen, Mac Beggs, who's a wrestler. He was an 18-year-old boy and he was trying to wrestle on the boys' team um, in Texas and the Texas sports people, whatever, refused. And so he had to wrestle girls and he kept winning. Um, And like, what is he supposed to do in that situation where he's a trans boy trying to wrestle boys, but people's, you know, prejudices and fears prevented him. And then he keeps winning in the girls division and people are booing him and, you know, making him making his life miserable. So it's just a very frustrating situation because it's clear that people are just like, I don't understand this. Therefore, you have to lose. You know, I don't understand what's happening um, now with with the ways that we are, you know, finally admitting that gender is not binary. Yeah. And it's it's just um, it's just a huge, huge frustrating mess. I don't know. I don't I don't have any answers, but I just I don't know. It's very frustrating. I just keep coming back to how condescending this is to women who want to compete like and the the idea that there's a limit on what a woman can achieve and if she exceeds that she must be cheating or her body must be wrong like Semenya when she first issued her challenge to the IAF on these regulations had this really powerful statement that just ended with I am a woman and I am fast yes. and I think about that all the time like why are these governing bodies so afraid of that being true? Yeah. Or why is that a threat to yeah. all other fast women? Yeah. Just just let her be fast and let her be a woman. Yeah. <laughs> because she is. Both of those things. Thank you so much, Alex, for getting behind the mic with us today. It was great to have you on. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Listeners, I highly recommend watching Castor Semenya's Nike ad that is recirculating right now. Email us with your thoughts at thewaves at slate.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. DLM's Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Tuka and Birdie. 
It's a new comedy series. The first season just dropped on Netflix last week. Nicole, give us a little rundown of what the show's about. Yeah, so Tuka and Birdie is about two 30-year-old bird friends. I mean, it is definitely not for children. (laughs) It stars Tiffany Haddish as an outlandish and carefree toucan named Tuka. And Ali Wong is Birdie, a very anxious songbird who's trying to figure out how to have it all while remaining practical. Um, Stephen Yun is Speckle, Birdie's boyfriend who moves in with her at the start of the series. Um, It is created by Lisa Hennewalt of Bojack Horseman. And a lot of what makes Bojack arresting and refreshing is here. But I think Tuka and Birdie is a little brighter and maybe even a bit more hectic, I think, than Bojack Horseman. But it's really about the friendship between these two women, uh, women birds. I don't know how we should (laughs) refer to (laughs) them. Yeah, they're like Um, women body bird heads. (laughs) Yeah. um, But (laughs) it's an an interesting show. I find myself feeling a bit mixed about it, though. Yeah, I I would say hectic is an understatement. Marsha, I know you told us you absolutely hated the show, you wanted to stop watching it, and you wanted us to not talk about it. So why don't you uh, give us your thoughts before we go any further? Wow, it sounds like kind of like collusion. (laughs) Pre-show, like, um, menacing. I love, like, deep cartoons. I love BoJack Horseman. I think it's one of the most interesting shows out there because it's about the human process and is very complex in its emotions. So I was very excited to watch this. And I think I have such a strong reaction to Tiffany Haddish. God bless her. Also, like, bless her heart. I think it's amazing the kind of career and platform that she's built. But I do think that because we are in the genre of cartoons that are half people, half animals, that there is something that I think sometimes when these types of cartoons come out, there's like no subtlety because you can do ridiculous things and you can do surrealist things. But I think when you have that kind of genre with the um, volume of Tiffany Haddish and her performance, it's just too much. Like I could not watch an episode. And actually this morning I felt bad and I tried to watch more of it and it was so difficult. And then I was like, am I being sexist that I don't like a woman being expressive? It set me down um, a terrible path. But all of that is to say (laughs) that I do like the idea, unlike Bojack Horseman, which I think is a little bit more self-hating and self-loathing in its tone, there is something about, in what I was able to watch, this idea of representing that feeling of having a close friendship, friendships among women in which one friend feels left behind or not moving in the same speed or the same rate as your other friend. And that I actually thought was kind of poignant, but I did not like it. Hmm. No, I felt the same way as far as um, I found Tiffany Haddish's voice. Uh, I don't even want to say the word because it's such a gendered. <laughs> you guys are really sexist. But I found it grating. You know, I found her performance grating. And I could not even just, you know, their voices. I like I do not buy the chemistry between Haddish and Wong as friends here. And I don't understand I don't understand why people are hailing this as like this great thing about female friendships when I'm just like this this is kind of annoying. And so I too had to stop and think is this just a sexist? Am I just, you know, another tool of the patriarchy (laughs) trying to diminish what these women are doing um, here? Um, 
But I also just know that this is not a show that you can put on in the background and <laughs> read a book or whatever. Like you have to pay attention because there's so many sight gags and there's so many things that you have to be paying attention to on screen at any given moment. And while that's great, that's what you're supposed to do when you're watching TV is pay attention. It also made me feel like it's it's almost forcing me to sit and stare at the screen in a way that I would prefer not to. Hmm. Does yeah. that make sense? Am I I don't know. I, that makes a lot of sense to me and and your description perfectly explained one issue I had with the show, which is that it feels like the framework is there for like a very deep and meaningful adult comedy. Um, and and I, like you, Marsha, love BoJack Horseman. Um, it's actually probably the only adult cartoon I've ever watched and, and wanted to watch and enjoyed watching. But I don't think this show has, like, the depth to fill in that sort of framework because I never, like, became invested in either of the characters. And I ended up watching the entire season. So the first couple episodes, I, like you, Marsha, had, like, almost a gut uh, reaction to like it made me nauseous because it moves so quickly and so many weird noises and there's so much surrealism going on in these little like interstitial moments where uh, you know bodies are moving in weird ways and there's like flashes of colors and I felt like uh, I was watching a kid's cartoon like something from my youth like Ren and Stimpy or something like that um, which is not the kind of thing I like watching now but then I did get a little bit more into it as the season went on. And it's a very quick watch. I think the episodes are like 20 minutes each and it's eight episodes. Um, but I I didn't feel like I had any sort of emotional attachment to the characters. And I know Lisa Hanawalt, who created it, who is a brilliant mind. Uh, I love the worlds that she creates with these animals. Like like you said, uh, Nicole, the, the sight gags and the sort of like puns going on in the background. Like I really enjoy watching all that kind of stuff. She has said that Tuca and Birdie represent sort of two different sides of her personality. The sort of like um, you know, outlandish and kind of self-involved and a little bit like immature side, which is Tuca. And then the highly anxious and, I don't know, afraid of commitment sort of side of herself, which is Birdie. So I wonder if she felt, like, too attached to these characters or, like, identified with them so much that they sort of were only able to be illustrated on a surface level. And, and you know, they're, they're very likable, I guess, but the conflicts that they encounter are very only drawn on the surface level and they never get to the sort of deeper, more like self-examinatory level that a BoJack Horseman does. Do you think it's because the characters are both female that they're not written deep? Because there's something about BoJack that I actually, I, I like it, but it's, it's very male and it's kind of self-loathing. <laughs> like it's the way men tend to hate themselves because of the things that he kind of does in the world. I mean, do you think that that's part of what's missing here? Maybe. I mean, the stuff that Birdie struggles with in particular feel decidedly female. Like it's sexual harassment and discrimination at work and, you know, trying to 
relate to your boyfriend and, 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 you know, childhood trauma in a way that, you know, both women and men experience, but women to a disproportionate extent. But yeah, I guess maybe that's another level of discrimination that I am projecting onto cartoons where I only, maybe I only see the, the internal struggles as deep if, if men are experiencing them. Is that what you're saying? Well, no, what I'm saying is, like, because Bojack's a bad person sometimes. And I think when I think about popular culture that writes women as bad people, it's usually either kind of campy or a little extreme. And I'm just wondering if, like, part of the poignancy of Bojack Horseman is, like, he hates himself because he's kind of a bad person, but he wants to be a good person. But the types of conflicts in Tuca and Birdie about, like, boyfriends and workplace harassment and your best friend like some of that is rendered that women are managing their emotions about things not women actively doing bad things and having to face the consequences i just feel like that's not something we see a lot of do you think it's because we don't mm-hmm. want to or or i don't say we because i'm not talented enough to draw cartoons but that people who make <laughs> art are trying so hard not to fall into the trap of making women like annoying and frivolous and the crazy girlfriend and that kind of thing that like that's the way to make women into bad people and and those are also sort of unjust tropes i I feel like if we're going in that direction then i would say that tuca and birdie may be an overcorrection of that because it's so light and when you're targeting women and then you start making everything pink with flowers and hearts and you know with whatever on it and although they're not pink purple hearts everywhere in Tuca and Birdie, because it's so bright and because it's I originally wanted to say that it's manic, but I don't want to put that kind of term on on the show. But it just really feels like I should be watching the show while I'm high out of my mind, mm-hmm. you know, and having some kind of like spiritual outside of my body <laughs> thing while I'm watching this show. I don't know. I don't I don't I like it's a fine show, but I can't, I can't necessarily say that I would recommend it um, as as this great example of I don't know, girl power or something. So one very explicit way that Lisa Hanawalt has tried to introduce like a feminist sensibility to this show or or give it a sort of feminist place in pop culture is through the gross out stuff. She has said in interviews. Uh, you know, it was very important for her to make this cartoon gross or to show women being gross, um, in part because of the experience she had on BoJack Horseman, where she would do something like, I think she told this anecdote to Amanda Hess in a New York Times piece, a profile about her, where she drew, it was a scene where like a car drove by um, a, a dog woman standing next to a business woman, a human woman, and the car like blew some slobber out of the dog's mouth and onto the businesswoman. And the creator of that show told her, um, well, that's not funny anymore if the dog if the dog person is a woman because it's not funny to watch a woman slobber. It's only funny if that if that dog person was a man, which is so absurd to act, to even try to explain that. Like even a, even a cartoon dog <laughs> has to have the appropriate gender in order for it to be funny in the eyes of this professional comedy maker who made this cartoon that I love so much. And, you know, that scene and that absurdity will be familiar to anybody who's watched Lisa Hanawalt's stuff because the 
the making dogs into humans but still having them do dog things is part of the humor. Um, and then the fact that you also have to lay human conceptions of gender onto that exposes a little bit of the absurdity of gender. But the gross-out stuff in Tuca and Birdie where, like, someone pops a pimple on Tuca's head and then she keeps the pus because it came out in the shape of Birdie – or like, you know, she gets pubic lice and the pubic lice become human sized. I, I'm not sure whether I think that's like a giant step forward for women or because they're still cartoons and also they're birds. Whereas the sort of gross out gags in something like Broad City or Pen15, which Hanawalt has said are inspirations for this, feel to me more striking and sort of humanizing and like, oh, yeah, women's bodies are also gross because there are actually humans in those roles. I think about like a movie like Bridesmaids and actually um, uh, the Tiffany Haddish movie Girls Trip where, you know, like doing gross as this kind of transgressive way of doing women's comedy, I buy it. Um, but part of the thing that's interesting about cartoon is cartoon allows you to do things that um, that does something a little different. And I think that um, it's interesting. I think that they, they, they use the genre in order to do different things. But I don't know if it's maybe not the spectacular things that are the problem. It's the kind of depth that's the problem. What do you mean? I think that it isn't the like the you know for the lack of a better word the manic quality of it or the bright colors I think it's because cartoons can be deep and that there's Mm. no depth so the there's so it's a distracting aesthetic and a lack of depth together and then I think the fact that so many people are celebrating it it just makes it it just makes it very confusing for me to understand it as any kind of like thoughtful cultural intervention because I think it is trying to be thoughtful I don't think it is being like reckless or like doesn't care I think it actually cares a lot it just doesn't quite execute yeah it's also a little bit jarring for me the way it takes on things like sexual abuse and sexual harassment but puts them into this like uh very easily resolved sort of 20 minute storyline I don't know maybe it's healing for some people to see those sorts of issues be transposed into a cartoon form and then like people sort of get over it or overcome one challenge and then they've resolved their inner trauma. But I thought it was a little bit of a annoyingly like pat way to treat that kind of stuff. And and I wanted it to either be one thing or another, like to be the fun, shallow cartoon or the cartoon that confronts sexual trauma in a in a very deep and nuanced way. Yeah, when I think about something like Archer, right, which is another very adult cartoon, all the women that are on the show are pretty much defined by the way they explore their sexuality on the show. When the other men, they have some of that as well, but not to the same extent. So for Tuca and Birdie to be women who are, you know, masturbating in bathroom sinks and stuff or trying to avoid one night stands like Tuca does. I don't know. I think that's refreshing, but it's also just like I feel like there's something missing. It doesn't have the depth that I'm looking for to make me want to stay in the midst of all this cotton candy stuff that's happening around them. 
Uh, listeners, I would love to hear if any of you have watched the show and what you think, um, especially if you really liked it. Our email address, again, is thewavesatslate.com. Okay. So Harper's Bazaar ran an article last week called Men Have No Friends and Women Bear the Burden. Marsha, tell us about the piece. Ooh, this one was a deep one. Um, So in the piece, they talk about anecdotally, and then they bring in a little bit of research about this situation in which men who are considered, you know, the good guys, as well as men who are considered a little bit retrograde in their perspectives on women, that these cis hetero men glom onto their female partners, their wives and girlfriends in a way that essentially just sucks the emotional energy from them, that they become deeply dependent on these women to meet all of their emotional needs, while women, because of their socializations and their um, ability to maintain friendships throughout their lifetime, they have these other emotional outlets. They're willing to go to therapy and read self-help books and talk to their girlfriends, while men just singularly focus on the women in their lives for emotional support. And they talk about the consequences for women bearing this emotional burden. They call it emotional gold diggers. And then they talk about using men's groups as a space in which men of a certain age can find some healthy connections to other men as a mechanism to unburden their partners. Did you recognize the dynamic in this piece? Have you seen that in your own life or in your <laughs> observations? Why are you asking me this question? <laughs> so I didn't want to talk about this. And then my husband brought it up and he said, are you going to talk about how men have no oh, friends? Oh, really? And I was like, yeah. So I was a little, I mean, here's the thing. My husband has friends. He's a wonderful <laughs> human being. Um, but I do, I mean, we talk about this, right? This disparity in connection and some of the struggles that he has had maintaining male friendships as he gets older and the ways that I have friends from different parts of my life. And I mean, we have talked about this in our dynamic and by no means do I find him emotionally exhaustive. I love him to pieces, but I mean, that's something we talk about. And so when I saw this piece floating around, I was like, I don't want to talk about it on the waves. <laughs> and he was like, no, he's like, you can talk about it, whatever. You know, he had, to, but I wanted to be sensitive to the fact that I think the origins of what he has experienced, and I have a lot of women friends who are married to men who also have this, is that sometimes it's a result of the cruelty that can happen in male friendships at a younger age that make men kind of afraid of other mm. men. And one of the things that I found out as I got older is that like every trope in sitcoms about men and women is just kind of a huge lie to reorient gender dynamics. <laughs> Because I have yet to meet women who are so, you know, excessively clingy and who depend on their husbands for everything and husbands are, who are so deeply independent that their wives are a ball and chain. Like, I've never yeah. experienced this or met people like this. But I do think this article does. On one hand, I, I think it says some really important things. But the But I do think that there is a fine line between some of these issues, and then like a deep codependence that everyone in the dynamic is responsible for working through. Right, because the the piece even says, you know, most of the women that the author spoke with have said, like, my self-worth is also wrapped up in my ability to be that sort of emotional rock for my male partner. 
And there's definitely a way in which I think women are socialized to be that person for both the men and the women in their lives too. But especially for men, like the whole idea of like fixing the bad boy or like seeing through this hardened exterior to the the damaged and sensitive soul within, that's sort of like glamorized and seen as a, a, a wonderful thing that women can do or like a woman's special ability to to be that person for a man. I do not have a male partner. However, I have noticed this um, when I'm hanging out with men versus women where the men around their male friends will talk a lot about like bands and movies and, and you know, work and, and occasionally relationships. But women talk a lot more about their relationships with friends and family and partners and whatever and their feelings. And I think I wonder if men are also um, having the this sort of emotional gold digging is a lot more of a value judgment than I would ever place on this sort of impulse. But if men are sort of outsourcing that emotional processing to their female friends, too, not just their female partners, I've read studies that have found that men and women get far more emotional fulfillment out of their relationships, their friendships with women than their friendships with men. So I don't think this is something limited to the heterosexual relationship sphere. The article resonated with me because as a single woman over 40 who dates men, I realized that I have been in the last five to seven years of my dating life, as these men have, you know, they've gotten divorced or they've left long-term relationships, I become their rebound counselor uh, I end up having to teach them how to be human again with other human people. (laughs) Um, How so? And it's a very frustrating. Well, they've gotten so used to communicating in whatever is the language of their previous relationship, right? Their previous long-term relationship where they don't need to say certain things because they know that their wife knows what they're thinking or something like that, right? And then they come out and it's like, no, you actually have to open your mouth and tell me the thoughts that are Hmm. in your mind because I cannot read your mind. No one can, but your ex-wife or your ex-girlfriend or whatever, you know, she knew you because she's been with you for 15 years people out in the world we don't know you we're just meeting you so you can't just you know show up and expect us to know that you like your steak medium or something (laughs) whatever it may be so those kinds of things are frustrating for me and I get tired of you know being men's rehabilitation centers so when I end up meeting somebody who has you know he's like yeah I just got out of a long-term relationship a couple of months ago I am turned off at this point because I don't want to go through like the process of helping you heal from your last relationship. And then once you feel better about yourself, once you feel like you are, quote unquote, a man again, you go away and leave me. And I've done all this work kind of for no benefit to me outside of a few months, you know, joy. So it this article made me feel like, oh, this is exactly what I've been experiencing, where, you know, men come to me and they're able to express all the stuff that's been going on in their lives because they don't want to go to therapy or I definitely relate to all of that. But part of me feels like, isn't this just a part of any relationship, friendship, romantic relationship, whatever, like helping each other process feelings? I mean, 
there's just this sense that I feel like there are just so many articles that I've been reading lately, including the one we talked about last week, that are justifiably trying to put sort of a monetary value on the work that women do in their relationships. So this one, for instance, is talking about like, oh, these women are being like a $200 an hour therapist for free. But what else is a romantic relationship or, or a friendship than like talking to each other about feelings and stuff? I just I'm not entirely convinced that this type of labor is undue. I got. I kind of struggled with some of it because I'm actually married to a therapist. So, <laughs> so he's that. technically doing your work for so, free. So yeah, like so we talk very deep. I mean, there isn't small talk in our lives um, because he likes to kind of just get to like childhood trauma, <laughs> you know, existential crisis. But um, I do think that there is a way that in most relationships, um, if they are involving two people, that there's always this sense that things are not equal and you feel aggrieved. And I know that I do. Like in these housework conversations, all the housework I do, I feel like is this the most important backbreaking work. And then the work that my partner does, like I don't read it as legible. Mm. Like I don't remember the last time I did laundry. It might have been 10 <laughs> years ago. But in my mind, well, laundry's easy, but I really like the dishes and that's hard work. So there's a way that I think the framing of this as unpaid emotional labor, I think is a little dangerous because I think it can render invisible the other ways in which a person can feel supported. And so dynamics and relationships that can actually be fixed by helping your partner connect with more people or ask them for a little bit of emotional distance, I think is okay. But when this, I think the way that this article was framed, it's like, and then everything is, you're unable to just function as a person because this person is so emotionally draining. Well, I think there's other stuff going on as well that is not just a dynamic, but it's a bunch of expectations that are not being met. I'm sorry. I think what the problem is, and people just don't have the language to specify how unbalanced it is. So they start trying to mm-hmm. put the monetary worth on it. Like I'm seeing this guy now. And at the beginning, he told me very early, you know, he was like, I have a really hard time expressing my emotions. I was like, OK, fine, whatever. But <laughs> <laughs> it's it ends up that, you know, when I'm having a bad day and I express that to him, he has no idea how to respond to me. Even Mm. though, you know, I've been very clear about what I want, he does not know how to give me the kind of response that I need, whether it's just, do you need me to come over with a Coke or do you need me to bring you a Butterfinger or whatever? He doesn't know how to give that back to me. But when he says he's had a bad day, I'm like, okay, do you want to talk about it? Talk about it. And I let him just like express whatever he's willing to express. But what he gives back to me is not... It's not Mm. comparable. So Mm -hmm. I think what happens is men just feel like, oh, no, she's having a bad day. I don't know how to deal with this other than maybe throw money at it and, you know, throw money at the problem um, if that's the case or whatever. And, there's you know, I don't think men have figured out a best the best way to respond to emotional stress outside of moving away from it or trying to fix it. And it becomes like a a really difficult problem when you're in a relationship, an intimate relationship. And then I don't know how men solve each other's problems when they're together as friends. I don't, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, this is one of those 
pieces that makes me think about how much it sucks for men that patriarchy exists. Like, uh, you know, and then in the way that it sucks for men, it also reflects then back onto women. Um, Rebecca Onion in Slate wrote a, a really good piece, I thought, about how um, from a very early age, male friendships are um, like even parents, even adults um, or teachers observing male friendships are sort of pushing them in the direction of like, oh, you know, it's kind of weird if you're like too close to your male friends. And that like boys, even as early as age five, are are sort of changing the way they interact with people from one of like mutual understanding and back and forth to one of sort of posturing. So when I read pieces like this, I always want to see sort of a follow-up about like how do we address the the root of this issue? And I guess it kind of comes back to the ye old <laughs> feminist ideas of like thinking about how we raise boys is, is just as important as thinking about how we raise girls. In one of the articles that we looked at about this topic, it talked about men being afraid of being seen as fragile or weak, but women are also afraid of that too when we are having these emotional crises. So, I mean, everybody is afraid of being, of looking bad and it, you know if we could just move past that to express our emotions and express what's going on instead of you know destroying bedside nightstands when we're angry or frustrated I think you know maybe it's a little too kumbaya but you know it'll make the world a better place yeah that part of the article where one woman is talking about oh yeah you know like my husband's amazing he's not really needy but he like regularly destroys our furniture I'm like that actually sounds like abuse you're Oof. not like he doesn't need a therapist he needs an anger management counselor and it's actually not up to one person in his relationship to be that person All right listeners let us know if you read the article if it called up any thoughts or feelings for you, you can reach us at thewavesatslate.com. All right, recommendations. Marsha, what do you have for us? I highly recommend the podcast Going Through It with everyone's favorite girlfriend, Ann Friedman, of the Call Your Girlfriend podcast. It's like she went deep into my soul, was like, this chick is having a midlife crisis. Let me produce a podcast (laughs) about women who were going through it. And it's stuff with career, relationship. You know, it's what happens when you get a disappointment or you get this kind of challenge in front of you and how you get on the other side of it, but not in a like, and then I overcame, but like, this is that feeling like I can't do this or I don't know what I'm going to do. And it's just so thoughtful. And it's Hillary Clinton about dropping out of Wellesley when she's 19. It's Soledad O'Brien and her pivots in journalism, Jessamine Stanley about being a fat yogi. I mean, it's just an amazing set of conversations. So I highly recommend going through it. Wow. What a star-studded cast of guests. It's good stuff. My recommendation for today, you know, this is stone fruit season is started and I want people to go to thepeachtruck.com. That's thepeachtruck.com altogether, thepeachtruck.com. And it is a place that you can order Georgia peaches from and they ship all across the country except for certain states. Like I don't think they can ship to California because of agricultural laws or whatever, but you should go online, check and see if they ship to your state. You can order like a box of 13 peaches and they are the best peaches you have ever tasted in your life. They come from Georgia. They're delicious. Uh, I, I I can't 
um, they're just <laughs> perfect. They also have like a cookbook now, so you can like do all kinds of wonderful things with your peaches if all you know is how to just eat them straight off the tree or whatever. But the peach truck, great peaches, speedy customer service. Just also, you know, because they're Southern, they're, they give really good hospitality. <laughs> so I highly recommend that you go online to the peach truck. They have peach jam. They have these amazing creamy pecans or pecans, however you want to pronounce it. Yeah, I just, yeah, I just can't get enough of the peach truck. I don't know if I've actually ever had a Georgia peach. <gasps> oh, my gosh. You have to correct that. Are they really that much better than other peaches? Yes, absolutely. Like, I'm from New Jersey, where oh, New Jersey's kind of known for its peaches, too. <laughs> no, it is. No. <laughs> no. No. I should probably give this a try. Yes, please do. All right. I am recommending an article from BuzzFeed. It's by Anne Helen Peterson. It's called Fixer Upper is Over, but Waco's Transformation is Just Beginning. It takes as its premise the show Fixer Upper, which was a house flipping series, I think on HGTV, starring wholesome Christian couple Joanna and Chip Gaines. They're in Waco, Texas. It ran for, I want to say, eight seasons. It's over now, but the show has been a driving force of gentrification in Waco. The piece was really incredible. It, it, it starts off with Fixer Upper, but it really talks about the transformation of Waco from this college town, Baylor University is there, to this sort of destination that people travel to, to see Fixer Upper, but also people are moving to, to retire to. And some of the neighborhoods where Fixer Upper was buying and flipping houses were, you know, historically black and Latino neighborhoods. The the Fixer Upper houses have uh, totally changed the landscape and culture of those neighborhoods. But also the church that Chip and Joanna Gaines belong to is is very unique. I mean, not any kind of religious community or community of faith that I've ever been adjacent to or a part of where it the church really seems like part of its spiritual mission is buying property all around Waco, moving into these historically black and Latino neighborhoods and establishing a presence and, you know, ministering to the people there, getting on the town council. And they see restoring, quote unquote, this town as part of God's plan for them. It's a really fascinating piece. And it speaks to the value of the kind of journalism that it's really hard for a lot of outlets to do these days, which is the kind where you send someone there for a week or two and have them like go on the fixer-upper tour of Waco, go shop at the stores, go to a church service and see how many times uh, you know Chip and Joanna's church says like that – they that you know you should pray for people who are choosing the homosexual lifestyle, um, which is something that Chip and Joanna have said. Like, oh, you know, our church believes that, but like we love everyone. But meanwhile, that's actually like the anti-gay message of this church is actually a very integral part of their entire raison d'être. So I highly recommend the story. It's called Fixer Upper is Over, but Waco's transformation is just beginning. That's our show. Thank you to our production assistant, Alex Barish, our producer, Danielle Hewitt. For Marsha Chatlin and Nicole Perkins, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.